Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host Ben Davison and it is Sunday the 1st of October in the year 2023. And welcome to the mishmash that is Australian Daylight Savings Policy. That's right folks, Australia now has one, two, three, four different time zones. So if you're in Perth listening to this, I don't know what time it is there for you, but it is currently just afternoon in Victoria. Look, you may be listening anywhere in Australia or indeed around the world. And if you are listening to us in another country, I'm sure our multiple time zone issues due to daylight savings seems a bit funny to you. Unless, of course, you're coming to us from, say, Russia, where they have almost an entire day's worth of different time zones. That's right. When your country stretches across the north of the globe like that, you get a lot of different time zones. Anyway, we're not going to talk too much about time zones, except to say I really resent missing out on that extra hour of sleep, as I'm sure others do too. But on the upside, it does mean we'll have more daylight at the end of the working day to enjoy it with our friends and family. And of course, at this point, we are now 13 days away from the referendum. That's right, only 13 days away. So all those extra hours of daylight at the end of the day can be put towards campaigning for a yes vote. And there has never been a more urgent need for people to get involved. Pre-poll opens tomorrow, that's Monday, in the Northern Territory, Victoria, Tasmania and WA, and all other states and territories will have pre-poll open on Tuesday. Why do I say there's never been a more urgent time to get involved? Because as Phil Curry pointed out on Insiders today, and as as Chris Kenny, two people whom I very rarely ever agree with, Phil Curry, of course, writes for the boss's pamphlet and is usually quite scathing of workers and worker issues. Chris Kenny is someone who has blocked me, blocked me on Twitter long before Elon Musk took over. who I generally disagree with about most things related to economic policy. But they've both essentially said, Phil Curry said that the no campaign is a series of non-sequitas, I can never say that word properly, about unrelated things instead of a debate about the need for an advisory body. Chris Kenny says the no campaign has become a grab bag of grievances. Unhappy about something? Vote No. Don't want to see Australia Day moved? Vote no. Worried about land rights? Vote no. Worried about taxes? Vote no. Look, they're absolutely right. The no campaign has become a grab bag of non-connected ideas and issues, really, about grievances that people might have with other parts of their life. Unhappy about your own lot in life? Vote no. Seems to be the general uh, message. Now, that's coming in part through a series of misinformation and disinformation campaigns. In fact, research is coming out from academics showing that the Atlas Group, which is a global network of quote-unquote think tanks funded by climate denialist fossil fuel lobbies, is helping fund and run the No campaign. There's also research that's come out showing that Facebook ran all but one misleading ad. The platform formerly known as Twitter ran all misleading ads and TikTok ran 70% of misleading ads. Some of these misleading ads include the use of the AEC logo. 
Social media platforms are being used by state government actors in Russia and China and Iran to undermine our democratic processes. People might go, well, why would they do that? Because chaos in a democracy makes it easier for them to govern their own population, to point at us and say, do you really want that level of division and disruption? Look at the order and stability we have here in, say, Iran. Now, people will vote the way they're going to vote. I'd encourage everyone to vote yes. It's a modest proposal, recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our constitution as the First Nations people of Australia and establishing an advisory body which will be governed by the laws of Australia and passed by the parliament. This is not about anything other than exactly what the question asks. There is no UN agenda. There is no land grab. There is no taxation component. All of those things are designed to misdirect people. They are designed to make people who feel aggrieved about their current circumstances make them feel justified in voting against some of the most marginalised minorities in this country. Less than 3% of our population is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Less than 3%. That makes them a very small percentage of our population. It will require the 97% to vote yes. Effectively, by voting no, you're telling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that they should not be enshrined in our constitution, that policies can be made without their consent, without their advice. Imagine if your rights were voted on in that way. Now, I am the proud son of lesbian parents. And I can tell you, it's a hard thing to have other people vote on your rights. And it's particularly hard if there are people from your own community who seem to side with the no vote, as Warren Mundane and Jacinta Price have done. And quite frankly, the discussion on Insiders about Warren Mundine was perfectly justified. Warren Mundine has advocated for violence. He has advocated racist positions. He has refused to distance himself from people who have taken blatantly racist positions and, in fact, has suggested that the voice itself is racist. These are projections which allow grievance culture and allow misinformation to fuel grievance culture. Because here you have someone who is being taken seriously by mainstream media, saying things that are clearly and demonstrably untrue, but being reported as though they are fact. So when the Atlas Group comes along or when the Chinese government comes along and fuels misinformation on social media, it's simply adding to the cacophony of noise. And for people who feel that their lives have slipped out of their own control, who feel under pressure, whether it be due to financial reasons or personal reasons or professional reasons, they can simply turn up their nose and vote no. In some cases, they get very activated We've seen it on social media, seemingly random, ordinary people who suddenly become obsessed with telling people how racist or divisive the voice will be. 
telling people that it will take their backyards based on nothing other than usually some snippet of misinformation that they've picked up along the way and their own internalised grievance. The whole concept that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders don't need a voice, they need an audit, comes directly from this grievance culture. The level of misinformation in this referendum is scary. It's important that we recognise it. It's important that the government's bill to stop misinformation and disinformation in elections does come to pass. And when this referendum is over and the dust settles, that we hold to account those people who are fueling it. We know that Clive Palmer is dumping $2 million into ads in the final two weeks of the referendum campaign. be interesting to see what content he gets and where he gets it from. And if he is deliberately spreading misinformation, what action can be taken against him, as well as action against others who have spread lies, misinformation, and dealt directly in threats. And yes, I'm talking about Anthony Mundine as well as Warren Mundine when I say that. Of course, the Yes campaign continues to promote the idea that this is an advisory body, that this is recognition in the constitution of our First Nations people, and that if we vote yes, we actually bring people together. You can see their social media features a lot of people coming together, discussing things together. And it really is chalk and cheese. On the one hand, the no campaign encouraging a sense of raw individual grievance. On the other hand, the yes campaign encouraging a sense of shared community, love and understanding. I know I'll be out at pre-poll this week in my community having conversations and trying to talk to people about why they should vote yes, just as I've done throughout this campaign. Hopefully, you'll be doing the same. If you can't make it to pre-poll, hopefully you will be making telephone calls or door knocking or otherwise engaging with your community about the importance of this issue. I want to give a quick shout out here because I did mention Phil Curry from the Boss's pamphlet, the AFR. And of course, the AFR has put out their power list as they do every year. I always think it's funny that uh, Gladys Berejiklian was at one stage uh, called the most powerful woman in Australia and the very next day had to resign in disgrace <laughs> due to <laughs> uh, her, her uh, ICAC findings. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, a big shout out here to... ACTU leader Sally McManus, uh, who is in the top five of the power listings and whose AI-generated image uh, was of Sally in a uh, <laughs> in almost a Kill Bill suit doing a martial arts pose. I know Sally has uh, promoted that image, uh, and it's quite funny. Of course, the union movement is at the table, and one of the AFR... Uh, people made this comment that the ACTU is at the table. I think it was Christopher Pine actually said the ACTU is at the table with government helping shape policy. It's such a good time to join your union. You can join at australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. And by joining your union, of course, not only are you being part of the collective helping shape the policies of this country, but you are 
in fact, strengthening your own rights in the workplace. We only need to look at the good results that United Workers Union members got at Ingham's, where they received proper pay rises and decent job security, or the fact that the United Workers Union, the Australian Education Union, and other unions have come together around early childhood education and are looking at doing Australia's first, for a very long time, uh, multi-employer bargaining arrangement. This will be a huge outcome in the early childhood sector, and we wish those unions the very, very best of luck. doesn't matter what industry you're in, if you're in the public service, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, uh, if you are an early childhood educator, if you are holding a stop-go sign on roadworks, if you're a train driver, doesn't matter what industry you're in. There is a union for you. You can go to that australianunions.org.au slash wow page and you can join your union there. And of course, if you want to get involved in the referendum campaign, go to yes23.com.au and follow the links to find your nearest activity. Speaking of activity, the Disability Royal Commission report was handed down this week. Now, I say activity because this was a huge undertaking, four and a half years in the making, 10,000 people made submissions. There are 5,000 pages of the reports across 12 volumes, and there are 222 recommendations. Now, this was only made public on Thursday or Friday, I think it was. If you think I've read it all, you would be mistaken. I have not. There are some people who have, and I give them the highest praise because it is obviously very difficult reading. There are a number of uh, stories that are very, very difficult to read. Bill Shorten has called this a, quote, moment of national unity where we can paint the horizon for people with disability in Australia. There are lots to break down in this. The report calls for a new Disability Rights Act, strengthening of the current Disability uh, Discrimination Act, uh, and highlights some of the significant challenges around care for people with a disability and opportunities for people with a disability. There are no easy or quick answers in this. The government will obviously take its time to respond, but it goes... It ranges from accommodation to employment to education. There is lots and lots to be taken into account here. I think some of the interesting things from my perspective is that this Royal Commission was not specifically about the NDIS. It's important to remember that, that it is a much broader remit than just looking at the NDIS, and there is obviously a review of the NDIS going on at the moment. There has been a lot of stories about the NDIS in the lead-up to the report being uh, announced. There was obviously a Four Corners expose about abuses of people in um, support of the accommodation. There was a brilliant article in The Guardian uh, about a profiteer who essentially has gone missing after promising 19% returns from an NDIS quote-unquote gold mine. Uh, where he essentially took over an organisation, split it up, sold parts of it to other parts of it based on loans that he had given it, leaving uh, a not-for-profit organisation with a $200,000 a month interest bill that was payable to him uh, and, of course, was reliant on NDIS funding to do that. There's been stories in the ABC about uh, people having to be, quote-unquote, rescued from abusive situations within the NDIS this report 
this situation, this scenario where we find ourselves with a multi-billion dollar program with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people when you take into account families who are impacted by uh, this this program, but more broadly, the policy settings around disability, where there is very little regulation, very little oversight. Uh, When you talk to anyone in other countries about the NDIS and the fact that there can be unregistered providers uh, who don't have to provide any real form of accountability to government uh, who are able to provide services and bill for services with very little proof that they've been delivered or that they are value for money. They simply scratch their heads and go, how is that even possible? I think what the um, Disability Royal Commission uh, is finding has found what the uh, NDIS review is finding, what Australians are increasingly waking up to, is that for such a long time, we socially excluded uh, people with a disability. We we pushed it into the shadows of our Commonwealth. Uh, there was not a lot of engagement, uh, and then there was suddenly a very large movement uh, around establishing the NDIS. Uh, It was established by one government, uh, the Gillard government, and administered effectively by an Abbott government who has a very different, who had a very different set of ideological beliefs, and that the administration of it uh, has not worked the way most people would hope. Now, that's not to say it hasn't had some good outcomes. It absolutely has. It's not to say that it's not worthwhile. It absolutely is. It's not to say that there are some people who haven't benefited enormously from it, but increasingly what we see is that there is still very large gaps within the system itself. There are some people who do do very well from it, and there are some people who, in fact, are just being exploited in a different setting to the one they were exploited in before. Now, that is unacceptable, and fundamentally, Whatever comes of the 222 recommendations of the Disability Royal Commission, and whatever comes of the NDIS review, we have to acknowledge that there needs to be greater oversight when there are billions of dollars of taxpayer money involved, when there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives involved, when there is a massively growing workforce involved. And increasingly, we see in the NDIS the emergence of these profiteers, these corporate raiders, these foreign private equity firms who are looking to make 19% returns, who are looking to exploit the worker and exploit the person with a disability or with disabilities for their own gain. That requires a greater level of regulatory oversight and a greater level of government intervention to ensure to ensure that the programs and policies meet their objectives and that the money which the Commonwealth invests or the states invest, essentially the taxpayers invest, is actually achieving those outcomes as opposed to lining the pockets of multi-millionaires and billionaires. And here, of course, I do refer to some of the providers in the space who, for example, I'm aware of one CEO of one digital sham contracting platform who has a multi-million dollar 
Harbourview Mansion, Harbourview Mansion, who has consistently argued that his platform should not be subject to the closing the loopholes legislation because even though some of the workers on that platform are clearly being paid less than minimum wage, they are all, in his mind, quote-unquote, contractors. Now, this is an unsustainable set of circumstances. At the end of the day, what you see happening to people with disabilities is fueled by this misadministration, maladministration of programs and policies that is driven by a sense of profiteering. So hopefully, hopefully, the Disability Royal Commission recommendations will go some way to addressing that. Hopefully, we'll see more oversight through the NDIS. And of course, we know that it starts with a strong and robust public service, having a public service that is able to administer these programs, is able to provide oversight to providers, is able to provide clear guidance and structure and frameworks, and that for a long time, the national, uh, the NDS, the National Disability Services, were capped. Number of staff were capped. Contractors were used. People were turned over. It was a very difficult set of circumstances. The Albanese Labor government is trying to solve that. Of course, we know there's tightness in the labour market and it is a difficult place to go and work. We know there's difficulty within the leadership of those uh, government organisations as well. And we know that Bill Shorten uh, and other ministers are trying to address those problems. Which leads me into my next story, the final story I want to talk about today, which is about Mike Pizzullo. So Pizzullo, for those who don't know, and you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already do know, but for those who don't know, Pizzullo was the secretary or is the secretary of the Department of Home Affairs. Now that means he's a public servant. Uh, he's on around $900,000 a year, uh, which is almost twice as much as the prime minister. Uh, and he has been the secretary of that department since it was established under the former Liberal government. Why Mike Pizzullo has come to the headlines in recent days is that it has emerged that Pizzullo has tried to influence the selection of ministers, uh, the prosecution of journalists, uh, and has basically been prosecuting a culture war from within the department using his position and using his connection to various Liberal Party influences to shape government policy and to shape ministerial appointments. It's quite remarkable when you consider that the Department of Home Affairs has been rife with scandals over the years. One only needs to look at the current situation in Papua New Guinea to see that there are question marks about how home affairs has conducted itself in our immediate region when it comes to contracting uh, asylum seeker accommodation, food delivery, water delivery, medical treatment, uh, how it has conducted itself in relation to bribery allegations in places like Papua New Guinea and Nauru. This is a man who has slammed journalists for receiving information that is in the national interest, uh, who has authorised and allowed and promoted 
the use of the AFP against journalists. At the same time, he's clearly leaking information to these Liberal Party uh, uh, officers, Liberal Party influencers, some of which is under investigation as to whether or not he may have, in fact, leaked sensitive or confidential information. Now, I'm not saying he has, but he may have done, and if he's found to have done so, he needs to be dismissed. He is. He has stood aside, and, and the, I mean, this is the, the reach and power of this man is extraordinary. So he's currently being investigated by Martin Parkinson, who uh, is part of the uh, Public Service Commissioner role, as I understand it, um, who he said isn't up to it. Um, he he has been praised by Peter Dutton since these amazing text messages have come to light. And credit to uh, Nick McKenzie and the team at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I know I can be critical of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but they did uncover this story and they have published it and they have been very brave to do so because it's very clear that Mr. Bazzullo is prepared to take on journalists and is prepared to use the apparatus of the state to do so. So it does take a level of bravery to report on these issues. Uh, Pizzullo is under investigation. Uh, It's my sincere hope that he is dismissed from the public service. His public comments about impartiality are clearly made mockery of by his private text messages to these individuals. He refers to journalists as having handlers uh, within government. He's, I mean, it's an incredible situation. You know, I think we can all appreciate that when Anthony Albanese became Prime Minister, he didn't want to simply sack all of the senior public servants who had been involved with the Liberal government. Catherine Holmes, for example, uh, who was involved with robo-debt and had moved to defence. Pizzullo, who was uh, head of uh, Secretary of Home Affairs. These are two individuals in particular that I think many people in the general public, as much as they are aware of these sorts of individuals, wanted sacked. What Anthony Albanese and the Labor government did was it followed pretty stringent processes and it continues to do so. You know, Mike Pizzullo was scathing of Mark Dreyfus, the current Attorney General, uh, and in some of these leaked text messages, it becomes clear that he has very little regard for our current Attorney General. But even so, the Albanese government has allowed people to continue in their positions while this sort of evidence is collected. And these positions become untenable. Either these people have to resign or they will be eventually dismissed. And as much as I think we all get frustrated with the sometimes perceived slowness of government, it has only been 18 months since Albanese became Prime Minister. And some of these people have been in place for over a decade and building their careers for two or three decades in the public service to take these positions, to take the public service down these uh, dark and dangerous roads. It's interesting to note that Mike Pizzullo, uh, as Secretary of Home Affairs, does have that $900,000 a year salary, but his staff are among the worst paid in the public sector, uh, and he has consistently pushed back against the CPSU's claims 
around things like uh, stress, organizational bullying. I'm aware of at least one case uh, where he tried uh, to fight against a uh, Comcare claim uh, where an individual was found um, to have to have died on the job. I mean, these are these are extraordinary. Um, extraordinary uh, positions to take as a senior leader in the public service. But the leaked text messages make clear these are ideological warriors. They have a cultural position. Uh, They don't think asylum seekers should be allowed to come to Australia. They don't think uh, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are our First Nations people or that uh, they have legitimate grievances with the way they were dispossessed. These are... uh, intrinsically ideological people. But by gathering this information, by turning this information to a case, if you like, for why they shouldn't be in the public service, I think it does strengthen. I think it does strengthen the Labor government's attempts to rebuild a public service that is at least honest and accountable Now, I'm not a big fan of this idea that the public service is apolitical. I don't think that that's a realistic thing. I don't think it's possible for anyone to be apolitical. And anyone who says they're not political is actually being political. It's a political choice to not be political. Uh, And I think what has happened over the last decade or so is that our public service has overly served the government of the day. And that's If that's transparent and that's open and that's accountable, I don't have a problem with that. If Mike Pizzullo is a political appointee and his position can be uh, reviewed and removed on change of government, I have no issue with that at all whatsoever. I think if that is honest and open and transparent for people to understand, so be it. But if the idea is the public service is the machinery of the state and continues on and just delivers policy without... uh, without fear, without favour, simply provides advice based on the law, based on common practice, uh, based on observable patterns, and doesn't put their own uh, lens on it, doesn't uh, fight a culture war, doesn't try and influence uh, government policy to be different to the policy that it is, or try and shape public opinion, then that model for that to work, you cannot have this duplicitous uh, behind-the-scenes politicking uh, that Mike Pozzullo has so clearly been a part of, regardless of whether he has done anything illegal or not. He has definitely been involved in behind-the-scenes politicking, and that flies in the face of this idea of an apolitical public service. As I say, I have my doubts about the capacity for any people to be truly apolitical, but you can't publicly say one thing and privately do something else and undermine the democratic structures of our Commonwealth and expect to get paid nearly a million dollars a year to do so. That is quite frankly unacceptable and Pizzullo should go. Whatever the findings of guilt or innocence, uh, whether there has been uh, criminal activity or not, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that there has been, there has clearly been unethical conduct, and that in itself should be enough for people to go. A standard, by the way, which I think we should hold 
uh, elected officials to, uh, in fact, we should hold them to an even higher ethical standard when it comes uh, to their behaviour and their private statements and public statements. Uh, there should be no room, no room in our government, whether it's in the elected officials or the public uh, service officials for duplicitous backroom politicking that undermines the credibility, transparency and the accountability that our government should have to every citizen in this great Commonwealth. That's all I'm going to talk about for the weekend wrap. There's been a huge amount going on. Of course, the next two weeks, get out there, vote yes, talk yes, campaign to yes. Ban and I will try and get a a week on Wednesday out this Wednesday. Ban will be in Sydney while I will be here at home. So hopefully the technology gods are with us as they have so often been over the last three years. Of course, if you've liked today's podcast, if you would like more information, check out our buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday supporter page. Every dollar that we get uh, given is that is contributed, whether it's once off or 20 bucks a month or a buck a week, whatever it is, all goes into expanding our listener base. Once again, we were a top 30 politics podcast in Australia. It's incredible. Blows my mind that we are up there competing with the likes of the Murdoch Empire. Just incredible. Grassroots, sharing, liking, listening, talking about these issues. That's what makes this possible. Until next time, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.